0: For the better part of the last decade, science fiction finally evolved from a niche genre into a mainstream staple. And while many people are familiar with the so-called fathers and grandfathers of genre, the women who have been instrumental in creating and shaping the nerdverse have largely gone unrecognized. Until today. I'm Courtney Enloe, and this is Sci-Fi Fangirls Forgotten Women of Genre, a podcast where we tell the stories of the women who helped some of the most famous fantasy worlds, become a reality. Well, then, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Damien Karras. And I'm the devil. Now kindly undo these straps. If you're the devil, why not make the straps disappear? That's much too vulgar a display of power, Karras. Orson Welles once called her the world's greatest living radio actress. The director, William Friedkin, once said that The Exorcist would not work without the contribution of the woman who gave voice to the demon Pazuzu. But Mercedes McCambridge, award-winning actress of radio, stage, and screen, initially went uncredited for what should have been her most famous role. The ensuing legal firestorm to get the credit she deserved was characteristic of McCambridge's approach to the world, both as an actress who specialized in playing tough women and as a ferocious advocate for those struggling with addiction to alcohol, an addiction she knew only all too well. She was known for her incredible voice, and she was not afraid to use it. This is the story of Mercedes McCambridge. Carlotta Mercedes Agnes McCambridge was born on March 17, 1916 to Marie Mahaffrey McCambridge and John Patrick McCambridge of Joliet, Illinois. The young Mercedes, nicknamed Mercy, was an imaginative child, often telling stories about an imaginary Spanish grandmother, and her temper led her to clash with her devout Catholic mother. Her gift for embroidering the truth and her temper would stay with her for the rest of her life. McCambridge described her childhood as ghoulish. Her family, including her undertaker cousin, often had picnics on the family cemetery lot. After graduating high school, McCambridge attended Mundelein College, a private Catholic women's college on the north side of Chicago. She joined Sister Mary Leola Oliver's verse-speaking choir, where she often performed solos during their dramatic poetry readings. A local NBC executive saw the choir perform and was so impressed that he signed them to the NBC Symphony Hour for a year and McCambridge to NBC for five. McCambridge spent her college years splitting time between Mundelein College and NBC's Chicago Studios, where she played the preacher's daughter on The Guiding Light. After graduating, she married William Fifeld, a CBS announcer, in 1939. The young couple moved from Chicago to Mexico to focus on Fifield's writing career and then to California. In California, McCambridge gave birth to her only child, John Lawrence Feifeld, and became a regular on NBC's radio drama, I Love a Mystery. In the early 1940s, NBC offered McCambridge the lead on the radio comedy, A.B.'s Irish Rose in New York. The young family made the cross country move and McCambridge's radio career took off. My soldiers, gone. Are you frightened, Captain? (laughs) Put the rope around my neck. You're not sane. I saw you hang. Put the noose around my neck. The bodies, I can see them down there. Hang me. You want your vengeance. Fifty times the rope must stretch. Fifty bodies piled like cordwood. (laughs) And you call that vengeance? In her 1981 memoir, The Quality of Mercy, McCambridge declared that Nothing in films or theater or certainly TV has ever touched the magical kaleidoscope of radio. Radio allowed McCambridge to play characters of all ages, experiences, and occasionally genders. Much of her radio work was genre. In her Sanctum, Murder at Midnight, and Lights Out, which McCambridge found gloriously gory, were all horror programs. Gangbusters was true crime. I love a mystery, a mystery. She even did a turn in a noir Hitchcock story on the screen director's playhouse called Spellbound. After her divorce from Feifeld in 1946, McCambridge tried settling in England and Ireland with her son, but quickly moved back to New York in 1948 after being unable to find work. The radio world welcomed her back with open arms, and she joined Orson Welles Mercury Theater for its last few seasons. McCambridge's foray into film came at the hands of a friend who urged her to attend a Columbia Pictures cattle call. Her temper got the better of her at the audition, but that temper was exactly what Columbia was looking for. McCambridge made her screen debut in 1949's film noir, All the King's Men, as Sadie Burke. The next March, she walked away from the 22nd Academy Awards with an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. The winner is Mercedes McCambridge. and gentlemen is one of those affairs and one of those things that can only happen in an Oscar affair. Down the aisle dressed beautifully in white is coming a young lady who for her first screen role, receives one of the coveted and highest awards that this our industry can get. 1950 didn't just bring McCambridge Oscar glory and an elevated profile. It also brought Fletcher Markle, McCambridge's second husband, into her life. During the 1950s, McCambridge was a prolific actress. She became known for playing tough women, like the puritanical Emma Small in 1954's eclectic Western Johnny Guitar, and the cruel Luz Benedict in 1956's Giant, for which she earned a nomination for Best Supporting Actress. While she played supporting characters on screen, she began headlining her own programs on radio. She was the lead-in Defense Attorney, an ABC radio crime drama about a tenacious attorney. While the show lasted less than two years, the Los Angeles Women's Bar Association gave McCambridge honorary membership to recognize her work. This was followed by a starring role in Family Skeleton, a CBS radio soap opera. But while McCambridge was succeeding professionally, she was suffering secretly from alcoholism. In an industry where social drinking and networking went hand in hand, McCambridge didn't think of her addiction, which would result in frequent blackouts and hospitalizations, as a disease until she met a sympathetic doctor. The idea that her alcoholism wasn't a fault of her character, but a function of how her mind and body process alcohol, opened McCambridge's eyes. It took her several years and a great deal of help to get sober. But McCambridge emerged from the experience determined to speak out against the stigmatization of those who struggle with addiction and get them the help they need. In 1969, she testified before the Senate Subcommittee on Alcoholism and Narcotics, becoming one of the first celebrities to be open about her disease. In her testimony, she ferociously advocated for the treatment of addiction as a curable disease, not a social ill. There seems ever to have been a proneness to this vice among the brilliant and warm-blooded. The demon of intemperance seems ever to delight in sucking the blood of genius And generosity, unquote, and I'm here to prove that Lincoln was right. When William Friedkin approached McCambridge for the voice of the demon in The Exorcist, McCambridge saw an opportunity to push her most famous instrument to its limit. In crafting the voice of Pazuzu, McCambridge went to extraordinary lengths. To match the volume and intensity of Reagan's vomiting on screen, she used mushy apples and raw eggs to create an appropriately disgusting glob to swallow and then throw up. To create the demon's breathing, she wheezed so hard that she once wet herself. She had the crew tie her up so she could more accurately convey the feeling of the demon being trapped. She was dedicated to her work, but it often left her so exhausted that she had to rest between takes or even stay at a nearby motel overnight rather than risk driving home while so fatigued. The results, however, were well worth it. But when McCambridge attended the premiere in December 1973, she was shocked to discover that her name was nowhere to be found in the credits. According to Friedkin, she didn't want credit for the role and her contract didn't specifically ask for credit. According to McCambridge, she was promised a credit card reading and Mercedes McCambridge as the demon. In her memoir, McCambridge describes being so upset on seeing that her exhausting exacting work had been taken away from her that she accidentally stole a car trying to get away from Friedkin at the premiere. The Screen Actors Guild stepped in, and Warner Brothers did their best to make amends. They added a credit to reprintings of the film, took out an ad in the Hollywood Trade Press the next January noting her contribution, and had executives personally apologize to her. But when Warner Brothers asked her to sign a release for a potential album of sounds from the film, she refused. A thing that I did, uh, The Demon and the Exorcist the film is a 100% radio performance Mm -hmm. because you never see me. All you do is hear me. And yet through the vocal apparatus, uh, I made people throw up and and pass out and faint and all that silly stuff. I keep insisting they brought that from home. (sighs) I think they came with their neuroses, paid their $3 and threw up or did whatever they were going to do. But it was interesting to pull it off in a film because it was really radio. Throughout the 70s and 80s, McCambridge continued to appear in film and television, as well as continue her efforts advocating addiction recovery. She joined the board of the Levengren Foundation, a Pennsylvania recovery center for those struggling with alcohol addiction, and served as its president from 1977 to 1981. But tragedy struck in the late 80s. McCambridge's son, now known as John Markle, had become a futures trader at Stevens Inc., an Arkansas investment firm. After a meteoric rise in the company, his employers discovered that he was embezzling and mismanaging funds in the fall of 1987 by using an account he'd opened in his mother's name. McCambridge had no idea what her son was doing. She refused to help John privately make restitution to his employees using her money, which would have let him resign rather than being fired. On November 13th, Stevens, Inc. asked for $1 million in restitution to be paid in 30 days. Three days later, Markle was dead. On November 16th, Markle killed his wife, two daughters, and then himself, leaving a note listing his grievances with his mother and blaming her for the murders. After this tragedy, McCambridge threw herself into her work. After appearing in an episode of Cagney and Lacey, McCambridge turned to the theater joining the Broadway production of Lost in Yonkers in 1991 as Grandma Curritz, performing the role 560 times. McCambridge died on March 2, 2004, of Natural Causes in San Diego, California. She left behind a legacy of strong-willed, complicated female characters, much like herself. Despite efforts to discredit her iconic work in The Exorcist, McCambridge refused to let herself be sidelined, McCambridge's work as both an actress and an advocate proved that an incredible voice, be it speaking in the voice of a ranch woman, a reporter, or the devil himself, can never truly be silenced. Forgotten Women of Genre is a production of Sci-Fi Fangirls. Today's episode was written by Claire McBride and read by Courtney Enlow. You can find the script of this episode and so much more at SciFiFangirls.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at sci-fi fangirls.